CDs for a penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. Jackson Maine. This episode is on Spin Magazine, January 1997, in the 1996 Year in Review with Beck on the cover. And Beck is their Artist of the Year, which is appropriate. Because, as we'll discuss, I think matched up against other great albums of 1996, Odelay is still the clear candidate. Back with me is John Waller, Nathaniel Addison, and Noyan Hilmi. We're going to talk a lot about Beck in this episode and his career and where he was at in 1996. We're also going to focus on the top 20 albums of the year that Spin picked. And there's some classic albums on this list that have stood the test of time. But in looking at them, we realized that we thought there was great albums that were overlooked even. And we addressed that. But in the heat of the discussion, I forgot to mention a few of my favorite albums of the year. So I want to tell you now, Jim Iroquois Traveling Without Moving not a surf high low and the fun loving criminals come find yourself now jamiroquay i'm very surprised was not on this list that was a gigantic record going into 1997 maybe more but still a great record not a surf high low had a song popular on it which i think most people will remember not a surf as a one-hit wonder but they kept going in their career and the entire album high low is excellent it's also produced by Rick Ocasek, which was a great choice, given that it's got the same energy and tone as Weezer Blue Album, although uh, it didn't quite land uh, the success that Blue Album had. And Fun Loving Criminals, another one-hit wonder-type band with the song Scooby Snacks, but I really love this entire record. Some songs are stronger than others, but there's one in particular I can't get with that. It's still one of my favorite songs of all time. I listen to it still to this day. I also want to mention that I've been doing a lot of Spin Magazine issues, and the reason for that is that uh, we do this all digitally right now, all on Skype. Uh, so because we're not in the same room as each other and we can't pass around a mag, I have chosen Spin a lot of times because Google Books has every Spin issue that ever was made on Google Books. So it's pretty easy to flip through and send to your friends. So that's why we've been doing that a lot. I assure you I have other issues like Alternative Press and Maximum Rock and Roll and even weirder stuff like 90s one-offs like Bikini Magazine. Eventually we'll get into those. I hope soon. But for now, we've been doing a lot of spin and a lot of Rolling Stone because they're easy to access their articles online. That being said, this was an amazing issue. I forgot how many amazing records came out in 1996 and how great a year it was. So join us as we look back at the moment that was Spin Magazine in January 1997. I um, all I did see uh, towards the end in their reviews, just their normal review section, I guess 96 and a year, they released the Airplane Flies High, the Pumpkins compilation, or yeah, box set. You, you gave it a measly four. I saw I that. They really slammed I saw it. that. I was like, ooh. That is unfair and foolish. I, at I couldn't disagree more. Like five, at least. I am a big fan of that box set, and I think that person was has a vendetta against Billy and is trying to uh, ruin his career with that terrible review. What a I shock. I could not disagree more strongly. <laughs> I liked it, too. It was a good one. 
it, honestly, like that, all their B sides at that time were really, really good. Not, yeah, he was on fire. Nat really yeah. gave me shit uh, earlier this year, or I guess last year at this point, when he saw that I had a pumpkins just playlist that I'd thrown a whole bunch of stuff on, and that there was not one B side on there other than Pisces Iscariot. <laughs> So he decided to make me a uh, aeroplane flies high list, I think, or a bunch of good B sides, and I really yeah. didn't get into it. I didn't listen to it at the time, which is weird. Aww. But then I listened to it. I was like, I am very underwhelmed by this, Nat, and I can see why these are B sides. <laughs> I, I think that if you listen, it was totally different. Like I, I, it's. I think if you didn't listen to it at all, it sound dated, and it's like a lot of it is very mid nineties. You know, this nostalgia factor is really, really high, I think. Yeah. Honestly, even, like, Pistachio Medley, like, had these tiny little nuggets of awesomeness that you could actually listen to the whole thing and be like, this is, that's, like, the first Spotify playlist, if you ask me. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, correct you just in case, because I know what all these uh, uh, pumpkins heads out here that are going to be listening to podcasts are going to catch it. It's Pistachio Medley. Is that what it is? Yeah, so I just correct that. And also, I don't know how closely you follow them, but so you do know that that is obviously just riffs that didn't go anywhere. And I guess Billy yeah. was just sitting on them, and he was so proud of them that he stitched them all into one, like, 22-minute track or something. And one of the riffs did, uh, I believe, I'm not an expert on these identifying riffs, but a, a post-reunion single called Glow uh, actually picked up one of the riffs from Pisticcio Medley and turned it into a full song. And it it flopped, I'm pretty sure. So I think, I really believe that was Billy being like, all right, I didn't get them with Zeitgeist, but I'm going to pick out one of my old 90s riffs and I'm going to blow them all away. And it was not well received. It was very, very boring. But the GLOW is actually an acronym for the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So at least it's got a little nod there. <laughs> to Billy's love of pro wrestling. So there you go. Details. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. I know. I knew. I I knew. I I think I saw Nat's hair like catch on fire when I just insulted. Uh, airplane flying. Yeah, I wish um, I should have been like describing his facial expressions. Like first there was a jaw drop, and then there was like a grimace, and like. Um, can I ask a question? Yes. At the very beginning of the year-end list article, the guy says that he doubts that Alanis Morissette will prove to be an influential artist. Maybe she was more inspiring, inspiring to other female artists instead of actually influencing with any sort of sound, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to think about where she kind of stands in terms of, like, alternative rock uh women like songwriters um not just chronologically right um because i'm yeah in terms of like how popular she was how big she was uh there weren't too many other women doing that kind of rock right like when you think of something like there you was, ought to know yeah there was already the the riot girl thing i think was established mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's not like there was a lack of women, but maybe that voice. True, no, that yeah, was I very guess there different, was like though. Courtney Love and. Uh, yeah, this is um, a difference between like kind of alt pop and like punk. So, and Alanis Morissette is again, 
in a very small echelon of artists who have sold more than 20 million records. That record she's sold got, like 25 million. It's absolutely incredible. She, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not saying that there weren't women in rock. There absolutely were, but just at that stature that she managed to reach of like, you know, pop rock. And mm-hmm. also, do you know what? And now that we're talking about it, I'd say she was because very accessible to look at her. She looks very normal, mm-hmm. uh, but she's got um, very angry lyrics. So maybe a voice or a uh, sort of as your mom could, she looked like your mom or your older sister or something, but she was also saying pretty ag- aggressively angry things. That mm-hmm. So maybe that was a combination that hadn't really uh found a been presented uh before so yeah the um guy writing the article put a bit of a finer point on it and uh later referred to the woman in everything revolution right what was that (laughs) i think that was like um that grew out of the uh alanis morris set um sort of popularity and if she did have an influence at least through this guy's land, it seemed like it was an influence of uh, sort of like propagating women's voices suddenly through everything. Uh, like maybe like an equalizer, maybe the, based on what this guy was saying. I was trying to imagine back in 96, so long ago. Of course. You could not escape that record. That record just spanned like three years of my high school. <laughs> it started in like the I, I, summer before grade 10. It was still going it was when I was in grade 12. The... Um, I'm quoting Wikipedia. A parade of singles kept Jagged Little Pill in the top 10 of the Billboard 200 album chart for 72 weeks. Wow. Wow. Mm. I mean, I just that think makes that the sense. strength uh, and the like the angst and like the edginess of You Ought to Know, like just kind of was really kind of fresh like for a mainstream audience especially like a, a female message like being like f you to your ex-boyfriend or whatever it is and i think that like just was enough of kind of like a tidal wave to kind of shift things um in her favor that even though i think her subsequent singles were all pretty strong they weren't as they didn't have that edge but they were still like kind of they were all like different genres almost you know like ironic was like almost like a different genre and one hand in my pocket or whatever like it was kind of like a very big mix but i think that had you ought to know not been the first single i don't think that she would have made the same splash it's just that she was just so raw and angry to like a a large audience i think that's really what did it Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently You Ought to Know came out as a single July 95, and then there were six singles from that record. Mm-hmm. And the last one, All I Really Want, was December 1st, 96. So a year and a half of singles that album spawned. Uh, For sure. And it was like, still I, I going strong like in 97, I still too. I remember that, just from the title of it. Sorry, Jackson, go ahead. No, no, I was saying I think it was still going strong in 97, too. Like, I remember that second semester of grade 11, and that, that record had not gone anywhere. It was it was still on Much Music, and they were still pumping out those videos. They were still promoting it. I um, will remind everybody that she did have two albums before that, and I actually uh. saw her at a telethon 
my dad was uh, a picking up phones at a telethon, and it was being hosted by Steve Anthony. Do you remember him on Much Music? Of course. He had the uh, sort oh, of yeah. blonde, long blonde hair, and I thought he was really cool. And Alanis performed, and if I recall, uh, she sang that song "Too Hot." Yeah. Which I, yeah. Uh, so that was '91 or '92. So she was. Um, she was definitely going for it for a long time. And I, she was, then she looked a lot more like a sort of like a mall pop star. And then I guess she really found her, her, uh, the image that worked for her when she sort of was, I you know what, maybe I'm a total mark, but I, got, I thought that she sort of shed that and was just herself a little bit more. And then it really worked for her. Well, I also think that at that time she was a teenager. So you're not getting to manage what your career is. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty rare thing, especially in the early '90s. Like you're you're you've got talent. You've obviously been picked up by someone. They're probably trying to mold you. And I think by the time Jagged Little Pill had come out, I didn't read too much into this, but it's pretty apparent that she just took control of her career and was like, "Okay, this is what I want to do," and it worked. And I was gonna actually compare the "You Ought to Know" video almost to the "Smells Like Teen Spirit" video, in the sense mm-hmm. that you you didn't know what this person looked like. That was her first single. That that you ought to know was on uh, every half hour on Much Music for like three months. My entire summer that year, I had no idea what that person looked like. It was just a pile of hair in a desert. It was the exact same as Kurt Cobain. It was like, who are these people? They've got their hair in their faces. They have no image. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they look like, but they're fucking cool. Could have been Shannon Hoon. <laughs> So the cover story and the feature article in this magazine is Beck, and he's named Artist of the Year. Spins Artist of the Year, 1996. We're in January 97 in this issue. What did you think about this article? I think the first thing I thought was that I thought Beck was always a little more humble, and maybe I'm just talking about his later career, but this is him at 26, and the article pretty much opens with them saying we're naming you artist of the year and he says was there really any competition yeah i thought that did not seem in character based on what i understand was he just being satirical and just kind of being funny or was he taking himself a bit too seriously at this point or was he right i've never known him to be that cocky i don't know that was that's really surprising i wonder if that was taken a little out of context and to a certain extent, he's got an allowance to just say his opinion. Um, it did seem like a strong year. Remember, John, when you saw the playlist, you're like, oh, this was a really great year. So maybe it was a little cocky of him to say there was no competition. It seemed like there was competition. Um, did you think there was it's any... also keeping mind in terms of competition. Like, who would Beck have been competing with in a strange way? Like... Because we're talking about the uh, year in which, like, 96, when he released Odelay. So this is the record and tour that's being talked about. And, you know, what was Odelay competing with at that time? You know what I mean? Well, that's what I was going to say. When you look at that list of their top 20 that we'll get to later, is this the obvious choice? I mean, I think it is. Uh, Is there anything, is there a record on there that you think is better was there a record that year in 1996 that you think is better than Odelay? Because I think, um, like, they, still, I would say that would be the top record for me. It would be my top record for sure. Uh, although, funny enough, uh, as a big of a Beck fan as I am, I 
never loved his albums start to finish. In fact, I was always more of a Beck B-Sides guy because uh, he was so all over the place. The, the uh, expanded edition of Odalay is amazing. The, um, there's a whole second disc of all the B-Sides that he was just on such a roll and producing amazing stuff. And I respect uh, Odalay a lot, as same with Midnight Vultures. I think they're both really obviously great albums but i just don't find that their listenability is that high it's mm. it's like watching a movie you really love and then you're like i can't i almost don't want to watch it a second time because i'm afraid that the the way it impacted me the first time i think it'll have diminishing returns when i revisit it whereas his throwaway songs i felt like were just so accessible and fun they're all fun really if I was going to look at the list, I'd be like, the only one that would almost compete, but I know that it's not, it does, can't really touches it, is uh, Evil Empire with Rage, right? Like, that, the singles are really, really strong. Um, it, you know, even though the first Rage record, like, obviously was massive um, and kind of, like, created pretty much, a, like, a new genre that they were the only band that could actually do, um, Evil Empire, the singles on it were amazing. They did really, really well. It's just I know that Odile had a much wider appeal to it, but I don't know. I'd, I'd say that Rage was a close second to it then, at least. Because one thing I was going to say about Odile is, does it hold up? I mean, I listened to to it. I listened to it today, and I thought it did, but it it is gimmicky in a way. Mm-hmm. The yeah. production, really, and well. I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, that feels more derogatory than I meant. But I guess it's just, like, it's a little all over the place. And on one hand, that works really well. But on another hand, does it, as Nat says, does it really, um, uh, does it make it suited to sort of longevity and repeat listens? Okay, so I, I'm a little precious with this record, I guess. And... I this was definitely my favorite record when I was 16 when this came out. I listened to this every day for a year. There's not a lot of records that I like every single song and I can listen to front to back and there's no skips or anything. Most records, you know, this maybe something was like, yeah, you know, that's not as strong or whatever. This one I love. And maybe it's just the 10,000 hour rule where I just like listen to it so much that it's just like ingrained in me now. But I compare it to Mellow Gold where I think Mellow Gold has like their two singles beer can and loser which are very similar songs and then the rest of the record is mellow gold it's a very strange record and it's way more of like what beck was doing at the time this record i feel like i feel like they're actually although there's a lot of different songs i feel like there it is built well like a record and it has a lot to do with the dust brothers production so dust brothers were obviously a, like a huge production team at this time and they had done you know for example beastie boys paul's boutique and so because you've got that type of production where it's like all samples and weird shit all of a sudden it just becomes like one whole record that's how i see it in the article uh i really enjoyed hearing him describe uh his process i uh so in 97, no, I guess it was 99, uh, I was like at the peak of my Beck fandom and uh, just crazy about him. And he had a show with his grandfather, Al Hansen, at the uh, power plant in Toronto. So, of course, I had to go. And that's where I um, learned that his grandfather has actually been a pretty famous 
artist, uh, this fluxus movement, and it really emphasizes, is like the birth of, gosh, I'm not the person to be describing these things, but it was sort of exploring what art can be and sort of emphasizing process over what the finished product was, and I, uh, and also audience experience. And when you're reading how he described it, he seemed even there in 96 uh, to really understand that. And um, I think I really give him credit for knowing what he was doing with that and this influence that his grandfather had on him. And I really see that in how uh, Odelay went together. And when he describes this sort of like building songs around samples and uh, uh, trying to also uh, talk about like, uh, he, he really is clear about like parody versus pastiche where he um, wants to honor these things. As a, he's not trying to make fun of them. He's trying to like dust, it's kind of like exploring relics. When everything's been done a million times, don't do it again. You've got this huge palette, draw from that palette and start uh, chopping things up and seeing how pre-existing things work together. Uh, <laughs> so in summation, we feel like uh, this is something that Beck was like consciously doing and really ahead of his time for uh, for turning it into the album that he turned it into. I, I, I mean, I enjoyed listening to the album again, but, you know, there was a few moments where I was just, you know, like a donkey coming in <laughs> through my headphones like ah, I need that. The... Um, this is like a John Cage thing. I was actually boning up on Wikipedia last night, in case you can't tell. And uh, sort of like this concept of uh, a, not having a conceived, a preconceived notion of what your product is going to be when you start it. And I can just, the way that album sounds, I think he was just really letting himself go pretty crazy with things. And it's hard as John, you and I have talked about like how hard it is to make good noise or like organized coherent noises it's it's hard well the other thing i thought when i was listening to it is and this was a little embarrassing because i mean i've i haven't listened to the beastie boys as much as a lot of other people have and obviously i've listened to paul's boutique a bunch of times but i was listening to odalay going like oh yeah these it's the same guys it's the same guys like I, before i even had to look it up just listening to it i was like oh it's I, I felt like I hadn't really consciously uh, through the music made that connection before that, uh, but it was totally obvious. But that's why I think this, <laughs> this record is, is amazing because it's mixing. I mean, it's like every record obviously just builds off the last and like what you were doing and you take a little bit of that and you, you move forward. And especially with Beck's career, that's true. You look at mellow gold and what I was just talking about and he's literally just taking a lot of snippet ideas from that going forward, going a lot more country and also getting the Dust Brothers to produce it. So it's like you think of Paul's Boutique was just like a 100% sample record with the Beastie Boys rapping over it. This is actually using the production of these guys with all the samples and scratching and things and then back going in with like instrumentation and lyrics. And that's why I think it's such an incredible record. It had never something like that had really never been done before. And this is something I didn't even really realize at the time, like when I was a kid, like that he was mixing so much hip hop and like country and like things into his music. And I guess that was like obviously the big appeal that people were saying, like he's mixing folk and hip hop. And now he's taken that even a step further with Odelay. 
Uh, I really love Mellow Gold. Um, it's probably my favorite Beck album. Uh, between the sort of like shades between those two, uh, he says in the article about how much he loves hip hop for like the truthfulness and he likes country for the simplicity. And he really, like, I've never heard those two things be com uh, combined in such an effective and appealing way. Like, uh, it's, it's even on Mellow Gold, I mean, you could say that. Um, Loser, I guess. Maybe not the folk. It's a little bit anti-folk, I guess. But with a hip-hop vocal track, uh, he nailed it, bringing those two things together in sort of like a really jangly, um, dusty old sort of uh, old-fashioned way. Yeah, I love right. it. Noyan, what do you think of this record? Um, I like it. Um, I I was really familiar with all the singles, but realistically. I didn't listen to it like most people did back in the day. Like I didn't wear it out by any means. Um, I thought that potentially if I was going to criticize it in any way, I actually thought it was too clean um, compared to the, the previous work that he had like um, mellow gold and the two records that he had before that were like, they had just so much like dirty texture and like the lo-fi appeal was like it was like a really really unique um sample record whereas like most of the lo-fi stuff that i'd been listening to at that time was most like straight ahead rock stuff right so that was really really unique to me and then odalay's singles were all really really strong and i really enjoyed them it just like it seemed like a different artist to me to a certain extent um and i liked it like don't get me wrong like it is likely the best record that came out that year but it didn't grab me the same way as his other stuff i feel like you know if if he had produced the same songs in his old way they would have been really really interesting or if he had had the dust brothers or whatever produce the old stuff in the new production like that would have been radically different as well like it was just to me like a really really drastic shift for him like being like okay like now I'm on like a major label or whatever. I've got great producers and it just, he stepped it up like a whole bunch of notches, which is really, really great. He basically got all the tools to do this stuff and realize the music the way that he probably has always seen it, which is really respectable. Like, as, as I think that, you know, like that's how artists grow, right? They, they kind of fine tune their art by um, utilizing different tools and collaborators and everything. Um, but yeah, I, I personally was a little bit more enamored with the style of his, like that earlier stuff. And I, I hate to be the guy, oh, I like their old stuff better. But, but I really did like that, that one foot in the grave, like that friggin' beer can or fume. Like fume is such a like killer song. It's such a piece of crap song, but it's so amazing. I don't know if anyone knows that song. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But like, like that stuff to me was just, really really interesting in a totally different way i just felt like it was a bit more special even though the stuff on odalay is fantastic and really special in a different way that's it um i uh sort of a piece of trivia is that the, apparently odalay was came out of what the original recording sessions had been and it was supposed to be a lot more somber record and then he just got on a roll with uh, some sort of party tracks. Uh, if you know the last track, Ramshackle and Jackass, I believe, are 
more in tune with what the album was actually going to sound like. I put this together from surfing the internet and sort of some educated guesses on like different recording sessions at the time. Um, but there's tracks uh, called Brother, uh, Feather in Your Cap, uh, which are some of my favorite tracks of his. And they're, they are that, um, they sound like more of a um, spiritual sequel to One Foot in the Grave. I, actually a lot more like Mutations too. Uh, but 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 nicely produced rather than sort of sounding like it was produced in a tin can. It was given that the budget to uh, be pretty um, uh, full sound and uh, actually those are probably my a handful of my favorite Beck tracks. And I I do wonder what an al- what that album would have sounded like. So Beck's had a pretty great career, and when he starts digging into the archives to start doing releases after he's uh you know make looking to make a little extra money but doesn't want to step in the studio and he starts doing archival releases i think people are going to be really amazed at the stuff he's been sitting on uh i, I actually think it's the strongest stuff despite the success of his career so i mean he's sitting on gold i'm sure he's like insanely prolific right yeah uh, like I'm, I'm sure that he probably has two to three times more records like that he's sitting on mm-hmm. just like you're saying that he's never put out um, and I will say that I think Jackass was probably my favorite song on that record. I do remember seeing Novocaine at uh, Lollapalooza 95. I'm like, <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> That's a good live one for sure. To your point, Noyan, what you're saying, I mean, we could say this of a lot of artists where they, they start out one way, um, you know, like much more raw sounding and like a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that they just didn't have the money or the production to like actually put into a record. But do you think like, because you're talking about one foot in the grave and then into mellow gold and these were very raw recordings. And uh, so was mellow gold actually put out on bong load records and then like DGC essentially signed him and like picked it up and then put it out, like, you know, mass distributed it. But I was going to say, and then all of a sudden you think uh, like he comes out with his second record. He's on DGC. He has complete creative control too, by the way. And he's got a ton of money now. And the 90s record labels are just like flushing cash. Is this just a result of a guy just has the money and the resources to just do whatever he wants? I mean, before it was just a guy with an acoustic guitar that was like barely tuned. And now we're into Odelay with the Dust Brothers. It's a drastic difference, but it just seems like the result of someone who just has everything at their disposal now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just like you have the budget. Like I think he he hadn't made it until he put out um, Mellow Gold, right? So, you know, that that's really where he gained that wider audience with a few of those singles, right? So now he's basically got the credibility that he has a record label that he has, you know, whatever his deal was, complete creative control. They're like, okay, well, you, you're printing money with your singles right now. So yeah, you can do what you want. Here's a budget. Um, okay, well, he can get the producers that he wants for that budget, and away he goes, right? Sometimes it really works, and sometimes it really doesn't, right? Like, like not the same comparison, not the same level at all, but on artists like a Canadian artist like Hayden, for example. So Hayden, Hayden put out a record on Sonic Onion Records in Canada, everything I long for. He produced that whole thing on 4-Track in his bedroom, pretty much. Um, very successful, big singles, lots of wedge, much music, videos, everything like that, right? He basically gets signed to Neil Young's, um, like an imprint that Neil Young has. And then he puts out this record that he recorded in a studio um, called uh, The Closer I Get. And it 
basically lost all of like what made him special. Then he was just another guy singing his songs in a mm. studio, and he completely recognized that and hated that record. He he really dislikes that record. And I know that he he basically got to sign with one of his heroes, Neil Young, but at the same time he put out a record that I know that he regrets putting out and it's not really something that he's happy with in his catalog. And right after that, he basically disappeared like Weezer did for like mm -hmm. five years and came back with a record that he produced in his house again. And he went back to true form. So I think that sometimes it works that you have like this unlimited budget, the seemingly unlimited budget. You can work with the producers that you want in studios and stuff. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work at all. So with Beck, obviously, he, his vision for these songs really, really worked with that kind of budget and he knew who he wanted to work with. Maybe Hayden didn't know who he, wa who he wanted to work with for his vision for, to be realized, but um, it's a hit and it's a miss sometimes. Beck would have never had the career he has now if he hadn't made Odelay. If he had just made Mellow Gold again, I don't think it would yeah. because I it would have easily turned into uh, Loser being a one-hit wonder which it almost kind of is now. It's weird. that That's like the separate song from his career. It's the only song they play on the radio of Beck, and he's got like 10 more records. It's it's crazy. But if he had just done that again, like Loser was a big hit, but did anybody, most people who probably bought that record were like, okay, there's some really fucking strange stuff on here, and, and all of a sudden it ends up in the used bin. Like that was definitely a used bin record because I think a lot of people did not get it. It ended up just having one really fun song and really fun video that found its way onto MTV somehow, and he got huge. And then he made Odelay, and it's a way more accessible record. And that's where he, I, I, like, he would not have had the career if he hadn't have made this record. If he had just done a bunch of lo-fi stuff, he just would have done that and just been sort of on the radar for the rest of his career. And you can see where his career went. He wasn't going to do Mellow Gold and One Foot in the Grave forever. He did this, and then he kept progressing. And then, like, his his... His career is just like waves where all of a sudden like he he goes up. He has this really big overdone record like Odelay. Then he goes into Mutations. It's a little little more subdued. And then he goes to Sea Change, which is just like almost like mellow gold again in the sense that it's just like a very simple stripped down like acoustic record almost. With Midnight Vultures in between, which was sure. another party record. For Absolutely. a long time, he was sort of going back and forth, which was a lot of fun. Uh, does does anybody still follow him? Like anybody listen to the album from last year? This is what I want to I want to bring up right now. Does, has Beck had like one of the best careers of the past twenty five years? Like I certainly think he does. The guy has never gone away. He's he's just he's done some really prolific things in the two thousands. He's done great records uh, in that time in the past like twenty years, and then like. Two years ago with that like super poppy album, like Colors or whatever, that got album of the year at the Grammys. So all of a sudden he was back up on top and getting a bunch of press. And I was he's always one of those people I'm thinking, is he gaining young audience members as he goes along? Sorry, I think you're confusing uh colors with morning phase got album right. of the year from okay. got the Grammy of the year. And that was like um uh Sea Change Part Two. That was in my opinion, it was so such a misstep to sort of recreate it just sounds like they just see change part two and it, mm -hmm. it, it just is so disappointing to see him sort of step backwards like that but that was 
the album that got him an album of the year, which he had never had before. So Alex has a funny theory about that. Are you familiar with this? Where it's Go basically ahead. the music industry is having to groom somebody who can be like a uh, big adult contemporary artist for the future and that they have uh, sort of strapped the rocket on Beck, so to speak. And it's like, oh, this guy can tour for another 30 years. So if we start pushing these later albums, I do think that of all of his great material, for that to be where he finally gets recognized, which is one, in my opinion, that is not that exciting of a record. Mm-hmm. John? Though it's interesting that, um, you know, he got album of the year for that, and then he did Colors and his 2019 album, Hyperspace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hyperspace... Um, synth pop ambient chill wave those are the tags on it on discogs (laughs) i did give it a listen and it's decent but i guess i was going to say that he you know just got album of the year and then was like okay i'm done with that for a while and then he like put down his acoustic guitars for a while he has made a lot of um sort of interesting choices and collaborations uh, a couple of years ago, he um, collaborated with this guy, Tobacco, which was from Black Moth Super Rainbow. That was probably the most, the last time I heard him release something that I really liked was the track he did with Tobacco. And then I know with this hyperspace, he's like with Pharrell and um, I think that there's like remixes by St. Vincent and stuff. So he's kind of like gliding into that phase of his career where he just kind of stocks the the studio with uh, the youngest, hippest people. Yeah, I mean it's a smart move. I mean, yeah, that <laughs> that that new stuff is it's not for me. I, I I kind of don't know what Beck is trying to accomplish. Is he just going, oh, let's just put some really happy synth pop stuff on the radio on on pop pop one hundred radio or whatever it is, because it doesn't sound anything like. I would ever expect him to make it's really syrupy stupid pop in my opinion <laughs> and I, I don't i mean but is he just going hey let's just churn out one of these i can do that that seems fun that seems like what my kid is listening to right now i'll, I'll try he hasn't really released anything that's bad it's just like mm-hmm. pretty boring yeah but is he gaining it's, like it's, is he like are are 15 year olds grabbing onto this right now that's a great question um, at least some I, of the singles. He had a really catchy single that was from that one, Colors. I did see him a few years ago. It was like two or three years ago. I saw him at a Budweiser stage or Molson Amphitheater, whatever it was called then. And it was really good, but there was quite a really big mix of ages there. So I don't think that he's basically, you know, turned into this guy where it's just his fan base has followed him around and it's then that's it. Like, I think he has done a really good job of picking up people along the way. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with you, Jackson. Like, the new stuff that I've heard the last couple of years is really not for me. I think it's kind of, like, just really empty. Um, like, crappy pop kind of electronic music. Like, lyrically, it's some of the worst stuff I think he's ever done as yeah. well. Um, it's very. I, I don't know what, what he's doing, but I, I really do hope it's like one of these phases that he has because <laughs> I think one of the most respectable things about him is that he does do that, like switching it up every record and you know going one way when you don't expect him to. So I'm kind of hoping that that's where he's at right now and he's going to jump into another like 
maybe a, an acoustic record, maybe see change part three or something. Who knows? I think one thing for me, and this may not be a fair criticism, but you know, colors and hyperspace, they just didn't sound like anything I hadn't heard before. And maybe I'm holding him to this standard of his youth and to the standard of old Odelay. Um, and maybe it's, it's, you know, maybe he has a right at this point in his career to just kind of do whatever he wants. But, um, I mean, I guess that's kind of a point of discussion is, is that a fair standard to hold him to? Is it, is it a real criticism to say, nah, this is boring about <laughs> someone who at it at one time was one of the most exciting artists? I mean, it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to move on to the uh, 20 best albums? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I've got a perfect transition to the 20 best albums. Uh, when I saw Beck at Varsity Arena in 97, uh, the opening acts were Atari Teenage Riot and The Roots, who are uh, both featured heavily in this issue. Roots were in the top 20 albums, and uh, Atari Teenage Riot just had a feature written about them. But still, yeah, that yeah. was a cool show. So looking at the 20 best albums of 1996, as voted by Spin Magazine, oh, guys, this is our heyday. Like I, I when I when I made I made this playlist and I put all of these records on. I put a single off each of them, and John wrote me back. And I think it's the first time I've made a playlist, and anyone has gotten back to me immediately and be like, "Wow, solid playlist here." <laughs> like, you know, I'm usually doing like the 2005 no, playlist, and it's like kind of iffy, but this is oh my god. Oh, no, I was just going to agree with what you were saying about how um, many of the other uh, months, years that uh, we've done before for issues. I mean, maybe this has the advantage. So the end of that thought was uh, the playlists have just been sort of uh, perfunctory listens, you know, just like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't remember that or oh, I do remember that. Maybe this issue has the advantage that it is a best of. Mm -hmm. So that's true. Maybe that's why it's a little more killer, less filler. Right. Okay. It's not like, uh, you know, this 2004 playlist. Do you remember this? These five garage bands that had one minor hit? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I do not. That's absolutely true, actually. Okay. Number one. Number one record is obviously Beck Odley. <laughs> He's on the cover. He's Artist of the Year. They obviously gave him Beck Odley. Now, for context, I actually did look up uh, Rolling Stones best of list this year uh, just to see if like maybe they had you know like a big bunch of big pop hits or something like that and they also uh, said that Beck was their artist of the year as well that was their number one record um, Odelay so both records this was this was this was his year man this was his breakout yeah. even more than obviously Mellow Gold was number two is the Fugees the Fugees uh, again I was really rebelling against hip-hop when i was a teenager I, I was you know i liked a lot of music i liked a wide array but i also didn't want to tell anyone i wasn't listening to like just this like cool uh genre that i had like placed myself into of like alt rock and punk and so i didn't want to like tell anybody i liked the fujis but then this guy i ended up hanging out with uh, in one of my classes was constantly playing this record and it, all of a sudden i fell in love with it and just thought it was incredible yeah, I feel like this record was sort of everywhere for a time. Mm -hmm. That song I posted on the playlist, Fuji Law, I think is an amazing song. It's dark. Yeah. It's it's like the, 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 the sample in it is just haunting. It's amazing. 
number three, pulp, different class. This has got Common People. Common. One of my favorite songs of all time. <laughs> but funny, I never entirely got into pulp as 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 a band listening to their records. So like this album i'm actually kind of i've only listened to it a handful of times despite my love of common people mm -hmm. guys... i love this album and it's amazing that it came out the same year as uh Odelay and uh the score like wow what a top three yeah that is uh and but it, it's funny to see uh different classes one of those albums that i just felt like was always around i think i didn't really start listening to it till a couple of years after and it just has like this like very classic feel to it. So it's funny for me to see it in the 96 list. I, it could have been older. Like, and, and to me, it seems like it was just always around to pick up and play. Yeah. I actually thought it was older. I actually thought it was just a year older. I thought this came out in 95, but it was 96. Me too. I thought that as well. It's weird, eh? I thought this was earlier. And I thought it was right around the time, like in between, like with like almost like Park Life Blur. Like it was around that time, but I guess it was just a little later. And I remember again, like discovering this obviously with the music video, and the music video was very strange looking. And I always, it was the exact same as when I saw Boys and Girls by Blur. I'm like, I, I'm not sure if I know what country these guys are from. Like I know they're speaking English, but are they actually British? Or are they? Is this from Berlin? Like it's a very weird video. <laughs> Wait, this weird French kissing aliens. Yeah. <laughs> this album did come out in '95. It did? October 30th, 95. Okay. Common People was released as a single in May of 95. We were right. Why is this <laughs> on this list? What happened? They must have a cutoff. Or maybe is that when it was released in the UK or something? I don't know. It, only, it doesn't have a UK and US uh, date. I feel like the wow. calendar is a pretty logical cutoff. <laughs> yeah, well, they gotta get this thing out. This thing probably got released on November first. John, is it just the single that got released in '95, or the record? No, it says the record was October thirtieth, '95. Wow. It says for Common People, May twenty second, '95, and then the next single on September '95, Disco Two Thousand, November '95, with something changed in '96. And it also says wow. that in Japan it was released as Common People. That's interesting. Okay. We need to write a letter to Spin immediately. I know. We this is we've, yeah. we're, we're three albums in. This is controversy. <laughs> Gee. Yeah. How can we trust it going forward? I, I could see Spin printing that retraction. In our uh, September 1996 <laughs> issue or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's weird. I really like the song "Feeling Called Love" off this record. I listened to this record a lot, but that was the one that uh, the song that I kind of connected to the most. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything more to say. It's just a good record. Yeah. Yeah. Number four, Imperial Teen. Are you guys familiar with Imperial Teen at this time? Imperial Teen. Nope. Yeah. What were their What was their really big single? I'm only remembering them from later. I'm remembering them from later '90s, and they had that song Ivanka. Like that was like 99, 2000-ish or something like that. I remember that. But I really don't remember Imperial Teen in the 90s. I don't know what their big single was in the 90s. Again, I couldn't find this record on Spotify either. So there's obviously Weird. something with a label not putting it on. Uh, okay. Number five is Girls Against Boys. Nice touch-and-go band. 
Uh, this is actually one of my thrift store uh, scores. I found this vinyl at Value Village for $2. I have no idea why it was in there. A 1996, a 90s vinyl at Value Village. Uh, number six, Tricky, Pre-Millennium Tension is the record. Before I sound ignorant here, is Tricky, Tricky is part of Massive Attack, right? He was for a time, but only really briefly. Okay. Yeah, featured on some tracks on Mezzanine, I believe. Okay, that's more what it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really into this. Uh, I had friends who were more in like the rave electronic. Uh, they were more into that genre, so I knew of it. I actually was listening to this this week, and it's very strange. It it actually really doesn't have like much danceability. It's it's kind of an odd record, but it's pretty interesting and unique record. He always just had a great voice, right? Like, yeah. Really unique with that, like, I, I don't even know what neighborhood it was, but it, it, it was just a great, great British accent. Right. Uh, number seven, Rage Against the Machine, Evil Empire. The probably, probably, probably the most anticipated record of this entire year, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody's been waiting since 1992 for, for that, for this record. Yeah, this record is amazing from beginning to end. Every single song is awesome. Yeah, I remember enjoying it a lot at the time. I haven't really revisited. Maybe I should. Does it hold up? Does Rage Against the Machine uh, still sound great now? I actually yeah. say that the production on this record holds up better than the first record. The first record, it's amazing, an amazing record, but the production, there's something about it that sounds a, a, like slightly more dated about it whereas this record i don't know i don't really know the history of who they were working with but this record sounds like they could put it out like five years ago it to actually, me i don't it, know I, I listened to it like maybe um four or five months ago it's it's solid it sounds like steve albini recorded this but he didn't and that's why i like it it's got a bit of a raw edge to it it's there's not a lot of frills on this record and it like you can really hear that studio like it seems like just like a couple mics hanging in a studio, and you're getting that 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 studio feel, like a, just a live band playing. And that's why I really like it. When I hear Bulls on the Parade, I really hear that production. I totally agree. Every part of it. Yeah. Whenever the band drops out, and it's just like a guitar or something like that, or Zach or something. It's just like the the quietness of everything and the lack of frills and polish just makes it even more amazing. Mm-hmm. Brendan O'Brien produced this record. Okay, that makes sense. Actually, I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. He was a big producer at the time. Uh, he did a lot of great records in the 90s. He did, did he actually record, he wasn't like a Pearl Jam, is he a Pearl Jam producer or did he just like record uh, like Vitality or something? The mixer on 10. Oh, okay. Because I know he was like, the, he was the engineer on Blood, Sex, Blood Sugar Sex but Magic. He's... Yeah, he's got, for his producer credits, he's got uh, Stone Temple Pilots' core of verses from Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. um, think Purple. I think he did a Soundgarden record. Did he do Super Unknown? Uh, he was a mixer on Super Unknown. So, oh, okay. yeah, so he did, um, he did work on Super Unknown, but he doesn't have a producer credit. Okay. Yeah, so he, like, he had his hands over uh, on a lot of really important records in the 90s important rock records all right number eight guys my most hated band <laughs> Sub <laughs> sublimed self-titled okay does anyone here know is this actually like a half decent album yes but uh, it's aged really uh, terribly 
Uh, and I was gonna say, uh, Jackson, when you're saying what else could have been a album of the year contender, this one has the death of the lead singer in its favor. Uh, so actually, I wouldn't have. That would have been an interesting choice. Uh, it would have been elevated for the fact, like, what do they say in movies? Like, don't go against children or the deceased because you will lose. Did it have any other singles? It had three singles. It, it had Santa Maria. It's a, it's it a has... really fun listen now in uh, 2021. Uh, the lyrical content is really questionable, and yeah, uh, yeah it, it's really toxic uh, in retrospect. It's... I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> okay, so I just, man, I I could go on and on about this record. Uh, or I didn't even know the record that well. It was it was, and it's kind of a. It's not the band I hate. It's their fans, but I do hate this band. Uh, it was just like a <laughs> bunch of suburban white guys with Bob Marley flags in their window, just like saying they like reggae. That's their fans, and that's who these guys are. I just feel like they just co-opted a bunch of genres, did it really whitewashed. They're not that great uh, of musicians. Their lyrics suck. There's that song, I Smoke Two Joints, or Two Joints on this record. It sounds like it's written by a fucking 13-year-old. Like, just like, (laughs) here's your 14-year-old who just discovered weed in grade nine. He wrote a song. I'm trying to like remember the lyrics. It's like, I smoke two joints at night. It makes me feel all right. I'm like, fuck you. Why? <laughs> uh, why? How are you selling records? There, I, that's I might. Traffic, right? That's the demo. The world is a really big place and there's a lot of people in it and a lot of people that, you know, probably worship this, right? Mm-hmm. So, and they would hate your music. <laughs> and um, I read the art. They got a write up in this issue, and I uh, took the time to read it. And uh, they paint a pretty interesting picture of uh, uh, Long Beach uh, in the '90s, and sort of like all these garage bands and all these bands that were so close to making it, but the sort of like the never were's, and how I, I actually it is it is pretty unfortunate because you got these three really average guys. And the uh, leads, and they have got this breakout album that's going to make them a lot of money. And before they can go tour and cash in on it, the lead singer tragically dies. And they uh, use it as a sort of a launching point to talk about how heroin was very chic at the time, despite what people would say. And it was uh, really being glamorized. Uh, And so you've got these guys who there there was the opportunity right on their doorstep and right before they could seize it um this guy brad noel mm-hmm. um you know bites it and uh, there it is and they kind of tried to start up a second band but i don't think anything happened with it and god they must be frustrated about that these guys are still printing money man out of everything we have just named that those songs are still on the radio every single day if i turn on the radio uh-huh. for an hour i'll hear one of those songs <laughs> hmm. yeah so I thought some of the songs, and you know, I'm I'm reluctant to defend them, but if I can separate the the song or the lyrical craftsmanship from what he's singing about, I kind of got a kick out of some of them. They're they're kind of fun rhymes, and I thought they were pretty clever. Now, as an adult, I listen to them and I I roll my eyes, but they are, you know, I thought I would defend the lyrics uh, from a wordsmith perspective, not from the the subject matter. Number nine is Los Lobos, Colossus Head. Anybody familiar with Los Lobos at this time? 
So not I remember the name from the time, but they weren't someone that I had ever heard. Like actually kind of hearing them uh, when you put together the playlist, it was like, oh, right. Like, I, I don't remember hearing them then, but I certainly remember hearing the name. I remember the only way I like discovered um, Los Lobos was the they did the soundtrack for La Bamba, which was one of my favorite movies right. in the 80s. Um, so basically, that's literally the only thing I know of them, and I wouldn't be able to name like a single. All of it is just like Richie Valens covers. Mm-hmm. Well, I listened to this. I, li- I listened to a couple tracks of this, and I put one on the playlist I made, and it's killer. Like, really awesome. I, like, it's hard to describe but it's like it's got obviously a latin feel they're singing in spanish but there's like these just like prolific guitars just like going and going and going it's almost kind of like noise layered and just like amazing solos that just like take the entire song into the end it's amazing i was really impressed i believe it i believe it they they were a really talented band i just i never dug into their uh their catalog you know Mm -hmm. i think it's probably worth it though yeah Number 10, Sibo Mato, Viva La Woman. Oh, I love this record. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, it's two Japanese girls, uh, New York City. This is probably one of the only things that was really happening at the time in New York when you look and you read that kind of in the bathroom book. Uh, hip-hop was happening, but bands weren't really happening in New York. There was this cool Lower East Side uh, art movement happening, and these people were sort of a part of that. And Sean Lennon is the bassist in this band. No <laughs> if way. You, if you didn't know that, the most uncool son of a rock star that there is, Sean Lennon, <laughs> who's a decent bass player. Yeah, like, let's be honest, and it's this, true. And this album, uh, the video Sugar Water, was a classic uh, Michelle Gondry video. That's right, John, you're oh. correct. And the other, there's another song on here called Know Your Chicken, and that's another single, which makes no sense. And the video is, again, very strange, but that's how I discovered these guys. I saw the video, very weird re- uh, video. Uh, the other song on this record is called Birthday Cake that I really love, and it's just like screaming Japanese vocals. Or sorry, screaming Japanese women in like very broken English screaming. It, like it just, that was a, I think that was a big moment for me of just like loving screechy like female vocals and also just like female vocals in general but like i think at that point i hadn't even really heard riot girl and that sort of thing and then i discovered sibo mato and i was like oh man i need more of this I, were they sibo mato or were they chibo mato that's debatable i've heard it both ways okay i mean it depends you know i think it actually i think you're right i think it is like chibo mato and this is probably Spanish, and my wife will kill me if I'm screwing this up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but well, so everybody but says, yeah, you can never be sure. They're Japanese, like uh, the they're a largely Japanese band, so yeah. or partially, anyways. For sure. Well, I mean, it's essentially it's these two women, and then you know they recruited some other people, yeah. but the build is just these two. They played recently. They they played within the past five years in Toronto, and I missed it. I was pissed off. I couldn't go. There was a reason I couldn't go, and I was upset. Number 11, R.E.M., New Adventures in Hi-Fi. So the follow-up to, like, the really big uh, monster that came out in 94 that, like, kind of was like a new era of of R.E.M. almost. It's It's a good record. It's actually a record I didn't appreciate at the time. 
Roots. You know, I was a really big R.E.M. fan uh, when I was younger, and Monster was like, Automatic People and Monster were huge albums for me. And when this one came out, I kind of let it slip. I kind of fell out of my R.E.M. and then didn't come back to it until many years later. And uh, it's interesting because it's it was recorded uh, mostly while they were on tour for Monster. Mm. So some of the uh, recordings, some of the songs on the album are straight from soundtrack, uh, soundcheck recordings. Oh. Um, it's also the last REM album with uh, Bill Berry. Oh, that's true, yeah. It's funny that he left that long ago. Is uh, recording an album from Soundcheck takes something that happens very often? That's pretty interesting. I wouldn't think so, honestly. Like, I don't think really anyone does it. Everyone opts to record it in the studio where it's a more controlled environment, right? They have all the software and boards and, like, plugins and stacked everything, you know? Like, I don't know. But I think at this this point in time, R.E.M. were the band to do it. They were, like, at the height of their powers. They were, they probably had enough money you know, in their tour, that they had all the equipment to do it, they had the skills to just play the song, you know, in probably only a couple of takes. So that's oh, really good for them. That's really cool. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, John. And like they were at like yeah the height of. I mean, God, those guys had so much money at this point, like with the record deal that they had gotten. And yeah, I'd never even thought about that until you said it. But like these guys had the power at that point to just like have a a touring engineer probably just one day behind them every time just like okay you set up in that venue that we're going to show up to and when we do it we're going to bang out some stuff uh during soundcheck and then hit the show so we don't have to like stop at studios we can just uh we can uh condense this in wow cool number 12 dj shadow introducing this is uh probably my personal favorite on this list yeah why is that oh that's a tough question (laughs) without going too deep into it like when i was you know slightly giving uh odalay a hard time earlier i think in my head i was kind of comparing it to this record and it was a very subjective feeling of like here's another record that's you know put something that's put together from a lot of different pieces but the vibe of the record is just uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I just, I love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. Still? When was the last time you listened to it? The other day. Yeah. I mean, I listen to this record a few times a year, like every year. Like, it's it's a still real, and it holds up mm-hmm. um, completely. I tried to look this up, and I couldn't find it, but... Somewhere back in the day, I'm pretty sure I read this, or at least someone I trusted told me this, that there was a list, you know, maybe the, the source made or something like that, a magazine of that caliber in, in hip hop that said this was the greatest hip hop record ever made. And I don't know what degree that would be because there's no, like, there's no MC on this and there's obviously lyrics and things like there's, there's hooks, there's lyrical hooks in this. But as far as like a rap album, it isn't because it's instrumental. But I could I could almost get behind that. Yeah, I mean, he called it a hip hop record. Sure, and, of course it is. Uh, although, interestingly enough, a uh, bit of trivia about this record. Apparently, it was 
Uh, I may get this wrong. I think it was disqualified um, from the Grammys in the instrumental category because he has one like vocal recording in one track. Oh yeah. Hmm. Would it be like one thing isn't sampled? Right. Is is this the record with Tom York on it? Is this Rabbit in the Headlights? No. 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 That's Uncle. That's Uncle. Yeah. Oh damn. Or I think Shadow contributed to, but that was, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name, James something. But I think it was the guy who like ran Moax. I really oh, hope okay. that's a correct. Somebody fact check that. Okay. We'll get the team on it. <laughs> uh, number 13, Tori Amos, Boys for Pele. Uh, I, listened, I listened to a couple tracks off of this in the 90s. I was into it. I like I like Tori Amos. I like when she came on Much Music. I wouldn't turn it off. She's a great artist. What was uh? I definitely listened to some singles. What were the singles off this? I think this is. I, I, it's been a long time. I'm pretty sure this is "Caught a Light Sneeze." That was the single that was on mm-hmm. Much Music. Number fourteen, Nirvana from the muddy banks of the Wishka. Again, the last gasp of Nirvana. Well, certainly not the last gasp, but at this point, it was trying like to squeeze one more nirvana record out this year uh so i was very briefly looking at this year's spin uh uh top 30 it was and i got the 2020 i'm probably not the person to make this judgment yeah 2020 and i really felt like their list was really preoccupied with getting the right names into it for example i didn't even know that tobacco released an album this year and he's got a, uh, I, I, they listed as one of their top tracks, uh, this collaboration that had Trent Reznor on it, but it was like highly distorted. I would have never picked it out if I hadn't been pointed out. And it really seemed like, it's like Tobacco and Trent Reznor, well, it's definitely got to go on our top 30. And a lot of the list kind of felt that way. And I, I'm looking at this Nirvana and I feel like the guy's like, there was a Nirvana album this year. Well, I mean, how many have we? How many of our top twenty have we allotted? Because make sure that this one gets a, a spot. Yeah, it's like, just a live record. As one of the albums of the year. I don't... It's not very. It's nothing special. It's just a live record. <laughs> yeah, it's Nirvana, which is great and all, but I mean, it's sure, cert- sure there was a twentieth album that could have ended it out. Yeah, I love Nirvana, and this was such a weird release. Like it was just like such a afterthought and it was he's like random tracks from a variety of different shows like a very kind of i don't know i i think i would have expected maybe like a double album of one show or something like that instead of like this weird kind of pastiche of multiple shows i don't know i i it didn't really sit well with me and i was a really really huge fan I didn't listen. I listened to it um, a lot, but not nearly as much as I should have. Uh, live at Reading is probably my favorite live album by any band. Uh, I, it is I concur. So man. great, so fun to listen to. So. I I completely agree. I am one hundred percent with you. That's my favorite live record. The the Reading, the Nirvana Reading. Yeah, but that came out way later, right? Oh, but you're you're absolutely right. But it's just way better. <laughs> like I'm, that was around. They could have done that. It was weird for them to put this record out. Yeah. Right? Totally. Like, it didn't make any sense. I was listening to bootlegs of Live at Reading when this record came out. Mm-hmm. You know, like why didn't they just? They had I had so I had so many cassette tapes and CDs of bootlegs of their shows and stuff. 
and all of them crushed this release. <laughs> yeah, it made no sense. But was this during the time? Like, would that have been influenced by sort of the power struggle over the catalog? Uh, catalog. Mm. Mm, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, the uh, Dave Grohl versus uh, Courtney era. Courtney, that's still going it's on. Possible. I'm sure. Uh, number fifteen, everything but the girl, walking wounded. You guys, is this a is this a trip hop album? Are you guys familiar with this? I don't know if against trip hop. I mean, I mean, it mentions like sort of techno and dub. Yeah, I remember this being uh, a big deal. I remember, people, I remember it being on much music a lot. I was not into it, but it's a good record. I listened to some of the tracks. It's good music. Still, still not my thing, but I appreciate it. But I'll tell you what is my thing, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. number 16 soundtrack to Waiting to Exhale. It's got wow, yeah. just just covered in Whitney Houston. I'm, I, I wonder, honestly, like, would this be the best-selling album on this list? Mm-hmm. I would imagine probably. that, that uh, this soundtrack probably sold a buttload. Oh, for sure. Soundtracks and especially R and B. This was a big, big time for R and B. Look at the the people on this: uh, Whitney Houston, TLC, Tony Braxton, Brandy, Mary J. Blige. That says it all. <laughs> hey, let's just put an album with all of those people on it and just sit back with a cigar in our mouth like Scrooge McDuck. Seventeen Stereo Lab, Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Uh, a great record. But it it does fit with uh, how they, this 1996 trend to be extra weird, uh, like embrace your inner freak. Yeah. Uh, this one it, it goes. A, I really like this record, but it, it they could have restrained themselves a little bit. I don't know. I don't want to say that, but uh, I don't know. I mean, my take on it was that like Stereo Lab was had been around for a bunch of years and were sort of gaining a following, and I think this is when Stereo Lab. Um, when they, uh, their popularity really took off at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're familiar with their catalog, yeah, you can be like, oh, well, you know, I like uh, transient random noise burst with announcements more. But I acknowledge that this this album was sort of where their popularity, I don't want to say pe- not peaked, but uh, uh, it there. became more of a not household name, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Breakthrough album. Well, I was listening to it. No, I mean, I think that. Uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. What's the album that Ping Pong's on? Shit. Mars, uh, uh, Mars Yak Quintet? Yes. Ugh. John, you are way better at pronouncing <laughs> Stereo Lab name records than I am. <laughs> These records, I can never remember what they're called. I they're was too really long. surprised I got out Transient Random Noise Burst with announcements. <laughs> Say it again. Say it three times fast. <laughs> transient Random Noise Burst with announcements. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, no, I think this could be kind of the top of the mountain for Stereo Lab. I mean, they... This was 96. They had a few more years, good years in them, but and they'd already been around. I listened to that song Percolator that I put on. This is not this is not my favorite Stereo Lab record. And actually, I put that song Percolator on and I left the room and it's almost like a record skipping. Like the end of that song just goes on forever. And I finally ran upstairs going like, oh my God, like this is annoying the hell out of me. <laughs> this went on way too long. <laughs> 
but still, I can't really say anything bad in general about Stereo Lab. I love them. Just, yeah. just, just on that note. Eighteen, Sleater Kenny called the doctor. Second record for Sleater Kenny. Made it yeah, into this spin is a record. bit of a, this is a deep cut for this time. I think I'd say so too. Like getting getting a mention uh, in a top twenty list for Sleater Kenny. That's a big deal. Listen to them. Uh, you know, I could see where they really progressed. I think I got into Sleater Kenny more in the later nineties, and you know, like they'd obviously progressed a lot like since then. This is a, oh, no, but I l- really like this record. When I was listening to it. I wasn't familiar with this at the time. I got into Sleater Kenny way later. This is a good record. I like Sleater Kenny. Was released on Chainsaw. <laughs> it's credited to Chainsaw, which is a, a label I've never heard of. Me neither. No recollection. It's just a basement record label. I do, I'm not going to look it up, but it's just like some person in Portland, <laughs> not Calvin Johnson. No, sorry, he's Washington Olympia. Okay, and Noyen, your favorite band that you're talking about, LTJ Bukum, <laughs> presents Logic Progression. I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Yeah, never heard of them. Pretty uh, deep cut in the uh, dance world, I guess. I suppose so. They were not on Spotify. And uh, rounding off the top of the list, 20, The Roots, Illadelph Half-Life. Really the, can't say anything bad about the, the roots. future Jimmy Fallon house band. <laughs> it's funny that's like literally the exact same thing I was thinking about. It was like, how did these guys become the Tonight Show house band with Jimmy Fallon? Uh, Razel, the godfather of noise, uh, human beatbox, blowing my young mind when they opened for Beck in '97. That was really, really fun show. Oh my god, I was I, I saw them once in 2000 or so like that I was really hoping that Razel would be showing up but he didn't however at that Roots show in 2005 I was standing beside this young man and I was elbowing my roommate Ryan Cox and going that guy there beside us he's on Degrassi he's the guy who plays he's the he's Jimmy from Degrassi (laughs) Aubrey Graham yeah (laughs) Aubrey Graham was standing beside me at the Roots (laughs) in 2005 and i was probably the only 25 year old man there going i actually know who that is because <laughs> he was probably like 16 and that's it that's the uh top 20 list it's really really saw the list this is a good list so after going through their kind of top 20 records it got me thinking especially after seeing like introducing on it which still means a lot to me um like what records you know, were my top records of 96 or what, not necessarily that I would add to that list. So one would be maybe uh, Less Talk, More Rock by Propagandi. Oh, wow. My favorite punk record of all time. Um, a Can Rock pick might be uh, Rio Statics, music inspired by the group of seven. Good call. Um, oh, and more Can Rock, One Chord to Another from Sloan. Any, oh. I'm sure any Canadian top uh, 20 list of 96 had one chord to another on it. One album that I thought, okay, so there's, and then there's two albums that I thought, one, I really don't get why it's not on the list. And another one I really think should just be on it. Uh, Pinkerton. Absolutely. Wow. Only <laughs> we, Pinkerton doesn't even get named. Weezer gets an extremely passing mention 
yeah. in the year in review article. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's no mention of Pink Pinkerton on the list at all. I mean, with not and, not getting too much into Pinkerton lore, that that record was pretty much a flop, and I was the only one who liked it. And so, of course, being a huge Weezer fan, I went and picked that up. Loved it almost immediately, but people really ditched it, and they were just like, "This is not Blue Album," and like it was like used bin fodder pretty quickly, and then people all of a sudden discovered it. I think they like went back and gave it that second listen a little while later, and and got into it. People Jackson, or is it like journalists hated it? Because I liked it, my friends liked it. I knew a they lot got, of people who hated they got it. Play on like much music and stuff. Not you know? really. Not not to all the extent this, not this. to the extent that Blue Album did. Like El Scorcho had its passing moment on much music. I don't really remember it getting a ton of play. I remember good the Good Life video a bit, but yeah, I guess it Barely. didn't. I, never I guess it was that. like a drop down, and and I guess. By this point, by the time they were putting out the, their lists, yeah, I guess the critics just. Uh, mm -hmm. But to me, it's it's an album that I was the same way as you guys. Like it was, I'd loved it from the start. I've never not loved it, and you know, it seems like it's lasted longer than some of these other records. One hundred percent. I mean, certainly with me, there's a lot of talk in every discussion about Weezer as that Blue Album and Pinkerton are the only good records. And then it just drops off from there. But this is like Pinkerton was also a late year record, so it came out. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure October of that year. So it just didn't hit. I think it like just didn't have the whole year. They're doing a year end list. Maybe it just yeah. I, I think critics maybe just weren't into it. Uh, it was kind of an afterthought. It was definitely a commercial failure. I know that for sure. The other record I want to call out um, is a soundtrack, and since they've included a soundtrack, for me, <laughs> 1996, the Train Spotting soundtrack. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah, that was huge. I'm, I mean, it's all—it was mostly, if not all, kind of old songs, mm -hmm. but still, like, uh, yeah, that was huge. For sure. And how much did you discover on that? I mean, all of a sudden, that was like right when rave that like kind of rave culture was becoming popularized and like and especially like coming to north america i was just like finding out about that at the time so you had this mix of like rave hits and then you had lou reed and and then iggy pop and, and that was like the revival of iggy pop's career oh for sure out there um it had uh, uh blondie which yeah. at the time it was sort of all we knew were uh, all I knew was Heart of Glass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rapture. So no, it's not. It's um, Atomic. Was my Atomic song. That's what's on there. Yeah, but that Lou Reed song, Perfect Day, and that scene in the movie that it plays to is so incredible. And I think that's that's probably when I first discovered Lou Reed. I don't think I knew who Lou Reed was before that. I knew Walk on the Wild Side, but I don't think I could have named who did it. And that's when I, I started knew, listening to it. I'd heard of him because of U two. Because um, U2 on their Zoo TV tour after Octung Baby, they covered Satellite of Love like uh, every show, and I think they put it on one of their singles or something. I would have I would have put on a couple like weird and totally different albums. Like I probably would have put a would have put on If You're Feeling Sinister by Bell and Sebastian. Mm. That that's a pretty amazing record. Right on. Um, Is that their first record? You know, like how many records in were they by that Noyan? That's their second record, I think. Okay. Yeah, 
Um, and then the other record, which is like, I like it, and I know it's not everyone's tough cup of tea, but I thought uh, Tool Enema was a pretty friggin' crazy record, and I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like that was, you know, where Tool eventually, like in the stratosphere, became Tool. It's, it's weird that they actually that it didn't make it to this list when you bring up Enema because that was a big important record people really loved it and I think of Stink Fist is like one of the greatest album openers of all time I just cranked that in my parents Saturn <laughs> that that whole record from beginning to end is amazing like there's no duds on it the production's amazing the writing's on it like it's just a phenomenal album Nat do you have one at all you good uh, well, Noyan took mine. I was going to say, if you're feeling sinister, uh, I had to actually flip through a list to refresh my memory. I really loved Antichrist Superstar. Oh, <laughs> was that 96? It's a little corny, but I really like it. It's kind of like if um, uh, Downward Spiral was a little bit more metal, and it really worked for me. I, I, the, I was really into Marilyn Manson at the time. I actually saw him shortly after I saw Beck at Varsity Arena, same, same venue, just shortly after. It was fun times. Um, I, I, I just have to say that's kind of amusing to me, thinking of you, uh, because I knew you at that time. And considering how many, um, like, Beware of God and Marilyn Manson shirts were, like, going around the high school hallways, I never would have... I was just getting to know you at this time. I never would have guessed for a second <laughs> Marilyn Manson. I was a Marilyn Manson fan on the inside. Uh, and, uh, Black was, on the inside. You know, and I lost interest in him so fast after that. His, I tried to, I was into it, and then just it fell off the cliff. And it was entirely Trent Reznor um, mm. uh, producing that album made it excellent. And it was definitely the high point of the Marilyn Manson storyline. All right, guys. Last but not least, before we leave, who do you think is number one in the charts? January 1997. This is going to be second week, second week I'm doing. So week ending like the 17th or something like that of uh, January 1997. So I'll go through the top. first. Of course not. Will we ever guess it in a million years? Yes. Okay. These are big, long, huge how records. How long have they been uh, at number one? Okay. Well, I'm going to do the top 10. So we're going oh, to get to okay, we're going to okay. get to number one. I'm going to do this uh, fast because you know there's, there's some duds and there's some amazing stuff. I will say right off the bat, there's this is so 90s. Every time we do the 90s, this happens. There's three soundtracks on the top 10. <laughs> soundtracks were a <laughs> big seller in the yeah. 90s. Okay, guys. Everybody's favorite adult contemporary artist. At number 10, The Moment by Kenny G. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know he's a top-selling artist. He's a top-selling cameo artist now. Uh, I saw oh. him uh, promoting his cameos on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. He will play you a, a like, 30-second snippet. But it was expensive. Him. Yeah. Right on. I wonder how much that costs. There's no way it that was... Kenny G is hurting for money. No, it was a lot. It was, like, definitely over $1,000. Oh, wow. For like, for, like, a couple minutes. For, like, a, some sexy sax? Uh, I think he did, yeah. Could you imagine having to make conversation with everybody? It's in his own best interest to bring a sax. 
All right, number nine, female artist, 1996. Who do you think it is? Alanis Morissette? Yes. Jagged Little Pill. Was, Alanis that Morissette. That's going to be my guess for number one. So that's number nine, Alanis Morissette. This is January 96. She's been on the charts for 81 weeks at this point. Holy shit. January 97. Sorry, January 97, John, yeah. Uh, last week she was at number one, and now she's at number nine. Somehow she got, or maybe I'm reading this wrong. Matt, you were Matt, you were one week off. Sorry, no, I think she was at number eleven. I think I think maybe they're saying that she like was her highest chart was number one, which is obvious. Number eight is Blue by Leanne Rhymes. I'm gonna edit in some crickets there. Okay, uh, <laughs> number seven. She's, the, she's like a legend now. Anyway, I know. like no, I, I know. Like my kids watch Mass Singer, and she was on there, and her voice is actually pretty insane. So yeah, respect to her. Number seven is someone I actually already mentioned to briefly. We were just talking about a uh, soundtrack with a bunch of female artists on it. So number seven is a big, big female uh, R and B artist from the nineties. Waiting to exhale. Or no? No, that's the that was the soundtrack. Pick someone off of that soundtrack. Mary John. J. Blige. No. It's Tony Braxton. Secrets. Oh, nice. Number six, the first soundtrack on this list. This is a pretty uh, innovative, uh, big deal movie at the time. This is 1996, 97. Sports movie. Okay, I'll give it away if I say too much, but it's a sports movie with cartoons in it. <laughs> Yes, the Space Thanks Jam soundtrack. A, wow, they're doing a new Space Jam. Did you hear that? I think I heard that. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a joke or not. Yeah, it's it's real, and I can't remember. I, I honestly I don't remember, but I'm wondering if it's LeBron. I think I heard it associated with him. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. LeBron seems like he wants to act too. So, number five, another soundtrack. You guys are not gonna guess this, but. Uh, it is another female artist off the Waiting Hex Sale soundtrack <laughs> that is featured, I guess, I don't know how to say this. Think of an R&B actress who was an R&B singer who was also doing some acting in the 90s and let's be honest, is probably the biggest R&B female artist for the last 30 years. Whitney Houston? Yes. <laughs> Number five is the Preacher's Wife soundtrack featuring Whitney Houston. <laughs> Number four, the third soundtrack on this list. Uh, This would have been a huge movie for us, I'm sure, like our age group at this moment. Big soundtrack for us specifically, I would say. Is it Cable Guy? No, it is not. I just looked up That's 96. I love that soundtrack, and I love that movie also. What's on that soundtrack? I don't think I've ever heard that soundtrack. It's got Hey Man, Nice Shot. Uh, It's got a Satellite of Love cover. Somebody to Love, performed by Jim Carrey, member from the karaoke scene. Right, yeah, yeah. All right. It's pretty great. All right, we're getting off topic here. Let's get back to this soundtrack. At number four, uh, here's my big giveaway. There's a Radiohead B-side on it. Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) That is correct, John. The Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, soundtrack, which is a solid soundtrack. Which, Which I actually, I think I only thought of it because there's an ad for the soundtrack in this issue. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it is actually, I, I was going to mention this before. All of my magazines that I've collected and saved are all very intact, except for this uh, issue that I've decided I would cut up. 
and there's a bunch of stuff cut up in it, namely some Beck pictures that I probably put up in my locker. But I also, for some reason, cut out that ad for the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. <laughs> Desperate for news. Where did that go? <laughs> crushing over uh, Leo and Claire. Oh, I'm definitely crushing over Claire in that movie. I loved her in that movie. I had a massive crush on her at that point, like in that film. I went with my entire theater class. We, I was like taking like a specialized theater class, and we all went to that movie all together. <laughs> it was a special time. Number three, sophomore record from a big band in the 90s. Who wants to take a guess? Really big, hard-pushed record. Bush. Bush X, yeah. Yes. I'm so glad you said Bush X, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> Razor Blade Suitcase by Bush or if you lived in Canada, Bush X. <laughs> because there was another band called Bush in the 80s in Canada that sued Bush. So on all our CDs in Canada, it said Bush X, which is actually a better name. Because when you really think about it, in the, the era of one-word band names that you had to pick, Bush? Bush is your fucking name? <laughs> Yeah, I never really thought about how terrible that name is before. <laughs> um, what was the album called again? Razor Blade Suitcase. Terrible, Razor Blade terrible Suitcase. band name. Was it? Album did name. you say it was produced by uh, Steve Al- Albini? Steve Albini produced this, yes. Yeah, I, I re-listened to it um, before that we recorded this, and it, it sounds like it sounds like an Albini record. Yeah, did you get a lot of Albini off of this? I sort of did but I don't know maybe not that much like it, like compared to like in utero or something like that there's a lot more production now I did look this up one thing I was trying desperately to find and I could not confirm this but what I always remember is that it was I thought that Steve Albini just took this gig for money and kind of laughed at the fact that he was producing Bush because he had just come off of Nirvana Bush was a huge band that like needed a big producer. There was a ton of money in the 90s. I heard that they approached him, management or an agent, and said, we want you to record Bush's next record. And he immediately said, oh, yeah, give me a million dollars. And they said, okay. <laughs> he was like, shook his head. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, big smile on his <laughs> so I heard that I could not confirm that he got a million dollars to produce this. Now, Steve Albini famously doesn't take any points on records uh, out of principle. So he got a hundred grand to record in utero and they, the, you know, agents and management told him you should be taking points because you're easily going to make 500 to a million dollars off this record. And he said, no, that's uh, that's Steve Albini. So anyways, I did look into this and in my research trying to find if he got this paycheck, I saw that he actually connected with with Gavin Rosdale. Gavin Rosdale approached him. They had a sit-down meeting. Gavin really wanted him to produce the record and really had loved everything Steve had done and they had commonalities in music taste. And Steve said in a quote I saw that this was the hardest uh, he'd ever worked on a record. Probably because this was the most money he'd ever gotten and the most time to just sit in the studio and do whatever the hell he wanted. He banged out in utero in like two weeks, I think. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you kind of tell that story because I may not think too highly of like Gavin Rossdale as a songwriter. But when I was listening to this record, I was like, I feel like he's got decent. Like, I feel like he's trying to rip off a thing, a bunch of things I like. Mm -hmm. He's like working with Albini and like he's obviously 
you know, would, had listened to In Utero a lot and uh, probably the Pixies. And so I, it, it's funny because that doesn't really surprise me that if you sit down with him and talk to him about music, you'd be like, oh, this guy's okay. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, uh, could be could do with being a little less handsome, but uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> but that's why he was selling records. So I uh, I I liked Sixteen Stone. I thought that you know I don't I don't care what judgment. I really enjoyed that record. So mm-hmm. when this record came out, I was psyched. Um, the production was better on it, but it didn't really like the whole record wasn't as good. But I did like Swallowed. I did too. Remember that was one of the lead singles. That was a really good song, and coincidentally. Not really coincidentally, like decades later. So last fall, I was at a festival in Ottawa and uh, I was there for like all, all four nights and Bush, Our Lady Peace and Live were on this um, cross Canada tour. And uh, I watched all the whole show and Bush was so good. I can't hmm. even like, I my expectations were so low. <laughs> they worked so hard. They did not phone it in in any way and i was like they got me excited to listen to their old stuff a little bit again it doesn't really you know i didn't listen to it for too long but (laughs) it was actually a really good show and i kind of like it upped my respect for them quite a bit because you know like his handsomeness and him being married to gwen and all this other stuff kind of like diminished who they were they were also like post grunge like rip-offs and everything but the guy wrote some decent songs and they worked pretty hard so it was it was a nice uh, little surprise to see them. When I looked up the album to listen to on Spotify, it uh, showed underneath that they put out a live record like this year or last year. Mm-hmm. Wow, <laughs> good for that. And like a new record yeah. this year. He's still going. Yeah, I think they took a pretty long break, and I don't think that the lineup is. Uh, I think he might be the only guy in the from the original band him or maybe one other guy i think everyone else has left and i don't think they did anything for a very long time and i I, they i think they put that record out last year i listened to like maybe the single it's not really worth listening to or anything but i don't know the old stuff was all right well his brother was the drummer so like classic that was so great for them this mr handsome frontman and here's my brother is the drummer <laughs> but you know he still got to make a really successful band but yeah no i never hated bush i did not own this record i never bought razor blade suitcase i think i acquired 16 stones somehow i think someone left it at my house and i liked that song everything zen i like that song machine head i really couldn't stand but there was other decent stuff in that never hated them Never thought they were like some bad band, but I think they kind of they got a lot of flack of just being like pretty boy Nirvana ripoffs or something like that in the nineties. So, you know, it is what it is. Number two, uh, getting into it, this should be fairly obvious, guys. Number two, um, like the biggest female artist, that, like not uh, Alanis Morissette. Pick the next one, the biggest selling. Celine Dion. <laughs> yes, <laughs> falling into you. Oh, yes. Celine Dion. Now we come to number one. Number one record. So this this, this is uh, January 1997, guys. This album by this band, which is a very, very huge band that you definitely know, has been on the charts for 52 weeks. This week it's number one. Last week it was at number one. And it's been on the charts for 52 weeks. Okay. Uh, were they sort of like a new band or an old band? They were a new band. Uh, this 
essentially this would have been their debut um, major label. So they had a record before this that no one knows. This is essentially their first record, let's be honest. This would have come out in uh, 95. Presidents of the United States of America. It is not Presidents of the United States of America, <laughs> although I wish it was. Uh, if I go any further, uh, it'll probably give it away, but it's a female singer in this band. Garbage. No. Keep going, man. <laughs> <laughs> 52 weeks on the charts. There's about five singles on this record. This record was, it It was almost like Jagged Little Pill. It just spanned how many years just cranking out singles. Really gorgeous uh, lead singer no of this band. Female. No I doubt. to be the Cardigans. <laughs> you want it to be the Cardigans, but Nat is correct. It's Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. Oh, wow. As soon as you said it, Nat, I was like... Uh, you could uh, you could have segued, man. You could have. Well, I guess that would have given it away. A spouse to. Uh, yeah. One I know. Spouse. I was I was about to get there, and I was about to just yeah. Look at this. Now, not a spouse at the time. I'd say probably just getting together at the time. But we have Bush, Gavin Rossdale at number three, and we have Gwen Stefani and No Doubt at number one. Talk about the powerhouse. <laughs> hot couple musicians in the 90s. Yeah, really, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and there's another person who's never gone away who's had an incredible career too, Gwen Stefani. Did you think like at that time that Gwen Stefani would have this prolific career like she's had? She's just gone on and on and she looks exactly the same. <laughs> she's 50 yeah. years old. <laughs> she looks like she's I, 25. I gotta say, Gavin looks pretty much the same too. Yeah, he's aged well as well. Yeah. Well, he's got that Gwen money. and that's it guys we did it we covered a lot of lists again but i can never get enough lists in my life when it comes to music and music (laughs) magazines so thanks so much guys thank you see you guys soon we'll do it again soon